Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Diana Felzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. And I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. For this week's episode, we are joined by Janice Min, a true legend in the world of journalism. Janice is perhaps best known for turning around the Hollywood Reporter. Before that, she was best known for turning around Us Weekly. Now she's in charge of an exciting new publication. It is called The Ankler, and it's a subscription-based media company covering Hollywood and the entertainment business. We spoke with Janice Min about her illustrious career, transforming The Ankler from a one-man Substack newsletter to a profitable media company and the future of the media business. Here it is. Janice, thanks so much for coming on the interview. Thanks for having me. Are the holidays a painfully busy time for you and the Ankler over in Los Angeles, or do you get to take some time to breathe, decorate a palm tree? I know that some beats are busier than others over the holiday season. Sure. Um, in between stringing uh, lights on the palm trees, um, it is mm -hmm. pretty busy here only because we're entering the season. Well, for starters, the year was crazy here in Hollywood right. and everybody, because it was, yeah, it was, a, it was like a crazy, terrible year. Good for a news business, you know, paradoxically, but uh, but bad for the overall um, entertainment industry. Uh, so you, what you've seen in the fourth quarter here since the strikes have ended is sort of this mad rush, not only to get projects going, but also to figure out, you, you know, after the dust has settled where everything actually is. And it's pretty bleak. Like mm. people are coming back to mm. a sort of, um, war-torn landscape, uh, and I think anyone who follows these business headlines around the entertainment conglomerates and the streamers, they see, you know, not great things. And even today, the announcement, uh, the, the news from the Wall Street Journal that Paramount may lay off a thousand people in the first quarter, and this is coming after sort of other rounds of layoffs, not at not just at Paramount, but everywhere. And so it feels right now a little bit like death by a thousand cuts in the entertainment industry. Right, right. And I do want to, we're going to get into uh, all that news. I wanted to speak first about the Ankler and uh, yeah. what you're doing there. So it's this really interesting media company, and I want our audience to have an understanding of what it does. So why don't we start with that? What is the idea behind the Ankler? The idea behind the Ankler is to um, give this very engaged, uh, professional, high-end entertainment audience. Um, news, it is not getting anywhere else. It's a high-level analysis and, um, and really data and information. Um, and so how it all started was Richard Rushfield is a very known writer, very well-known writer in Hollywood. And he broke off and started his own Substack like so many people did, but he was probably one of the first. And I had, uh, in my world, all these very senior people, CEO level, top producers, top attorneys were telling me, have you seen this thing that this guy, Richard Rushfield, is doing? And so I became a subscriber, loved it. And what Richard was doing was really capturing the, um, the shifts in entertainment that we were seeing uh, that we started to see back in 2019, where it was going from a legacy old studio business, seven studios into a streaming led economy. And it was turning everything upside down, um, both in the kinds of shows and movies that were getting made, but also in the employment of people in town and the town's hierarchical structure. Uh, and so Richard was owning that disruption. I 
asked him if he wanted to do, to do something more with it. And we did a small fundraise. We were in Y Combinator and, um, and we managed to make a business out of it that really serves, I would think one of the things I'm proudest of, of what we do at the Angler, it's very thoughtful. It's, um, I would like to think it's some of the smartest things you can read about the entertainment business in town. And it's a high subscription price, it's $149. And what we're not doing is trading on news as a commodity, um, but giving people, every, I, I'm always pleased to see the stories that perform best for us are the ones that, that we're giving people information they are not finding anywhere else. How did you weigh the risk versus the reward of taking on a newsletter and carving out a completely different blueprint for a media company? So I feel like the risks are not in doing something like this, but in sort of trying to save legacy media. And and I guess most notably twice in my career, I did that at uh, at Us Weekly uh, back in the aughts and then The Hollywood Reporter in 2010. And uh, so it's hard not to think of every um, legacy media operation as trying to figure out a way to reinvent itself for this new landscape that we're in, which is not great. And um, and there were a few places that were doing it really well. One, one place was the information um, that had targeted a high-end audience in a specific business niche. Um, and Jessica Lesson, actually, uh, the the founder of the information is it was one of the early investors in the Angler. So it felt like there was a template to do something quite different. And, uh, and so, the, so to me, it didn't feel like a risk. It felt like, okay, let's, what if we have none of the extraneous expenses that come with a, with a, um, a legacy business? We don't, we're not trying to run a big scale, the programmatic advertising operation. We don't have any print to dispatch of. And it was really just sort of clean slating it and stripping it all down to really just the information and how it's delivered. You mentioned Y Combinator. Can you tell us about that process? Sure. Um, so Y Combinator um, is the, you know, as they, as many people call it, the leading seed accelerator of Silicon Valley. And so they publish, I'm sorry, they, they don't publish anything. They, they, but they've backed companies, all tons of companies you've heard of, Airbnb, Dropbox, uh, Instacart, um, the list goes on and on. But most notably, one of the companies that they had backed, I think the only other pub publishing company outside of Reddit, if Reddit counts as a publishing company that they had ever backed, was The Athletic. And so we, Richard had been publishing his newsletter on Substack. Substack had been found out of Y Combinator as well. Um, the One of the founders of Substack suggested us to Y Combinator to, for funding. Y Combinator actually approached us to, um, uh, to ask if we would be part of their program and to apply. And uh, from there, um, you know, it's, it was pretty fantastic. It's like this three, three month um, boot camp. We were able to do it remotely because of the pandemic. And, um, and from that experience, let's see, I think we we raised five hundred thousand dollars out of out of Y Combinator, and uh, that was enough to get us going on our business. I mean, it was it's pretty crazy. We felt a little bit like you know rubbing two sticks together to make a media company, but in some ways you actually can do that. So I think for me, who had worked at these giant operations and big companies, it was 
it was sort of refreshing and fun to kind of like make something new up. Um, so Y Combinator has been great. I love them. Yeah, I, it's have, fun. Sorry, go ahead, Diana. No, I was going to mention you have a staff of four, right? That, that, is that oh, no. Wrong? No, no. <laughs> We've grown by 50%. Nice. Oh, there you go. Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and article yeah. that said you had a staff of four yourself included. And I was like, that is a Herculean effort. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I, I would say the first year was like a reality show of like, you know, like naked and afraid. Like how little can, <laughs> how little can you, uh, you know, what, how, how little resources can you uh, use to build a company? And, uh, and it was, so it was, I mean, the nice thing about it is we were profitable, I would say from day one. I mean, it was, um, and so that was, that was a, a revelation too. Like, okay, you can actually scale your revenue in a company um, on very few resources. So I think we will always be a lean company. Well, we're definitely going to hire a few more bodies around here. Um, so I'm not, you know, the one hitting uh, payroll, the send button on payroll every two weeks. But, um, but it's, it's, you know, it's been great, like a, a uh, to build a company literally out of nothing. Yeah. To, in, in an era where we have so many of these like venture backed media companies that like, BuzzFeed Vice that are expanding, scaling at this crazy rate, getting huge valuations, and then exploding into nothing. It's good to see places that are profitable from the get-go and that uh, actually have a business model that works. Now, a, a few other places have adopted a similar model, I think, uh, to you. You know, there's obviously Axios and Politico, sure. you know, years ago uh, carved out an audience that was willing to pay for like micro-targeted coverage uh, in their case, yes. Washington, Washington DC. And now you have the Ankler, you have Puck, which launched yep. as a collection basically of newsletters from big name reporters and has, you know, similar to the Ankler, a subscription base of yep. industry bigwigs. Do you think these kind of publications are the future of news? Do you think this is the way that the model has been figured out for how to pay for coverage, like this smart coverage? <sighs> I mean, I think it's I think it's symptomatic of where media has gone, and you know, social media. I hate to say, but just the the algorithmic culture of the last decade, everybody can choose their own adventure, and I think everyone's become quite accustomed to that. Uh, and when you look at what what scaled media did, and the the chase to grow web traffic, you didn't actually. It, it became a race to not to um, not to fill the deep interest, but to fill the wide interests and, uh, and to do it for free. And so I do think that, um, you know, what we've seen, certainly for us, and, and I, I forgot to also mention, I, when we were launching, we also looked at Punchbowl as, as right. something uh, which covers Congress and uh, was doing extremely well. We looked at Punchbowl. It has something like something $10 million that, in revenue now, which, which was, I, I was think it's shocked actually by, which is I think nuts. It's, it's, I mean, I guess it's it makes not, sense, right? They know what they're doing, but well, still, I, my God. Well, I think it's, you know, yeah, I think when you look at these like high premium audiences, right? right. These high value influential right. audiences. I mean, you could have uh, an audience of, you know, uh, 63,000, which we have, but it's probably among the most valuable audiences to have in the world mm -hmm. uh, in terms of um, who people would like to reach and the influence of those people. So, um, I, so I think that, yes, I think it is for now the, the, 
it is the right environment for specialty products, specialty newsletters. But I also think in this disaggregation of media, there's going to come a moment, probably in the near future, where there's some re-aggregation. And I think you can see it sort of parallel to even, you know, streaming and streaming services where or the cable bundle, which is rebundling. Great rebundling. <laughs> streaming service. Yeah, which are consolidating because I think some of these some of these assets would probably work really well together and some right. will be big enough to right. acquire others. Now, you have all these major names subscribing to the Ankler. You've yeah. got, you know, everyone from David Saslav to Richard Plepler. I think he said in that yeah. uh, Vanity Fair profile that it's like the first thing he reads every morning, which is uh, uh, extremely flattering, I imagine, for you guys. Extremely. Uh, do, you yes. do you think that you'll be able to scale the Ankler, though, or is it worth staying a certain size and remaining nimble and targeted? <sighs> So um, that is what we think about every single day. Uh, right. So it, serving the core, serving that audience, like people would kill to have that audience, and we have it, um, and we've had it from, uh, we've had it, you know, for Richard almost from his day one. Um, so never losing that essential DNA is is critical. Uh, and so what we've started to do is we started to roll out some new offerings to reach a broader audience. I, you know, as much as I love our CEOs and C-suite audience, they are a limited resource. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to keep growing, uh, uh, you know, from, from a pool that doesn't grow anymore um, or is not expanding. So uh, we, we've been very business focused. Um, we've started to uh, dabble in coverage. Uh, I mean, given my experience, it's surprising it's taken me this long of the consumer um, and sort sort of the uh, the people who consume movies, the pe the people who consume television, and really dive into the creative aspect of the business too. Obviously, um, so much is spent on just dissecting moguls in the business of the industry, but it's the creative people who run the who are the engine of the town. Without the creative people, you don't have the business people. So um, we've We've started some, we started to cover, we just started a, a, a newsletter called Prestige Junkie uh, for award season, for Oscar season, to cover that race, to cover the movies. Um, uh, and and we dabbled, dabbled a lot during the strike about um, in covering, particularly the writer's strike, uh, because the writers in the WGA are so obsessed with reading and consuming everything that's written about the strike. And so we man we brought on a huge number of WGA members during the strike. And so we we're definitely servicing them through stories about um, stories about their life and their world and what's buying and what's selling in the entertainment industry, which is the great mystery of our times right now. <laughs> right. And do, do you prefer this kind of operation from the more traditional new newsrooms that you cut your teeth in? How, how are they different? I mean, I think that I think there's no option but to create newsrooms like this one. I think that um, I think that the headlines that come out of the newsrooms where I've been are really rough, and I feel for people who work in publishing. It is I, I all you know I, for people who worked in the heyday of publishing, which I would probably say were the 90s and the um, aughts in New York 
like there was no greater time. That felt like it was never going to end. And it was sort of a defining culture of New York City. And then it became a declining culture of New York City. And it just, it just felt like, like to see something, this incredible industry disappear before your eyes is really, um, you know, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And I think that uh, in retrospect, the way people view it, like, you know, how the publishing companies let this, I don't want to put blame on the publishing companies, but there are people who would say they let it happen to themselves. Um, and just through this sort of collective embrace of uh, Google and Facebook and Silicon Valley and chasing scale, it just, we've, we've seen the struggle of these companies trying to figure out what to do post all of that, uh, now that the tech companies have decided they're no longer playing along. Um, so, uh, so yeah, do I, I, I absolutely love having a big newsroom and having a huge staff and getting to do all this fun stuff. Um, but it doesn't, it no longer, I've seen very few places that can justify that as a business anymore. And, you know, we're going to kind of harken back to your previous life. And you've not only led big magazine brands like Us Weekly and The Hollywood Reporter, and you gave them life-saving makeovers that really turned them around. What was your recipe to success, so to speak? How did you breathe new life into those outlets at that time? Uh, so breathing new life into an outlet. Let's see. So it's <laughs> it's sort of, I mean, part of it is like, I'm just sort of like an an idiot in that like, I really think I will could do something that had not been done. And some of it is just my own, like I've always followed my own interests. So I felt like, I mean, it was interesting at Us Weekly. It was just like, this is what people are, this is what people care about. Some of it was, I was, I was the audience. I was, I think when I took over as editor in chief there, I was 32 and that ended up being, you know, the average age of the reader. Uh, and it ended up being, um, you know, a city dwelling, well-to-do professional woman and it kind of seized a moment but it it was sort of understanding what the culture was of celebrity at the time and i had had this long history of working at people magazine and in style and i i was i i got it i understood what that audience was talking about at that moment and then it was able to sort of you know through this i had this amazing team and we were able to put that you know, at the time on the page. And, um, and it was, it's, it was like, there's this thing that I think people will, I certainly miss from publications, from print magazines, where when it came out, it felt like an event. And there was this moment at Us Weekly, like, uh, for several years, where like Wednesday mornings, when it would come out, there would be sort of people in, in New York City would stop and you'd see women reading it on the subway and it would define this entertainment agenda for the rest of, for the rest of publishing. It was fun. Um, and, but all of it was sort of audience first. It was all very audience focused. And I always felt like when you lose sight, when it becomes like what you want versus what you think the audience wants is when you, when places go sideways. Um, and for Hollywood Reporter, it was, it was, a, it was a sort of, you know, a very similar experience in that it was uh, the place had just, and I think you see this, and I think this is the risk of a lot of media outlets today. Like you see this sort of downward spiral where uh, I call them like cultures of defeat, where you just don't, you think like, oh, we're just managing decline and mm -hmm. it's coming to an end. And 
and Hollywood Reporter was definitely in that place when I took over. And it was sort of like, it, it helped being an outsider, being from New York and coming to LA and just looking at it differently, like, wait, oh my God, you have one of the greatest names in publishing. You have the word Hollywood in your name. No one else really has that. You have access to everybody. You have, uh, you know, we're being given like a, a photo budget that people would dream of, like just all sorts of, all sorts of ways to, um, I think the key to the Hollywood Reporter also was this belief I had that you could make a publication. There had never really been a publication from LA that had broken through on a national level. Um, but how can you use this sort of influence that entertainment has to um, win over a national audience and um, and sort of bring these kind of professional New York publishing skills to what was then sort of a sleepy daily trade paper. So. Um, uh, so the idea of making it something both for the people, I remember this line I used at the time, like, it, like how do we make it something for um, professionals and the people that they're married to who can like it equally? <laughs> what When you're looking at the big trade magazines like The Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, Variety, what, what role do you think they play in the industry these days? Do you think they're, they're as powerful as they once were, I, you know, that might be a silly question, but like, what do you think the, the place that they play now in the industry is? And, and what do you think the future of those big trade publications covering, covering Hollywood is? Do you think that they are on the right track to remain relevant or are, it, are we at the point now where, where the leadership of those places is, are really just managing to climb? Well, I think that everything, <laughs> I think that, I think that everything has its era, right? right? And I think you saw in 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 the entertainment space, Nikki Fink and Deadline had had that era, and it made it really disrupted the way uh, trades did things. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter came in and really uh, went from the sort of last place loser into sort of the dominant publication in in the, in the entertainment space. I would say that um, competition was always a big part of making the trade press. And certainly in the decade when I worked at The Hollywood Reporter, it, it was a vital part of, um, of motivating the newsroom, of differentiating content. And so when um, Jay Penske took ownership of the major trades of both Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and then also Deadline, I, I, I think that is tough. I think that that, um, I think it's a, I think it obviously reduces competition, but right. I also think it's a dilution of voice. Um, and, uh, and I also, there was also this marketplace for journalists where, um, you know, many times I had to counter someone's salary because they were getting offered a job at, um, you know, Variety or Deadline. And at that, at that time, everyone wanted sort of this magic of the Hollywood Reporter on their staffs. And people got raises. People could, um, felt like they had options in town. And in Los Angeles, you, now you've really limited your options because um, there's one place that's, that's uh, probably the largest employer in terms of, you know, certainly entertainment media, but probably all media. Uh, so I don't think that's great. Um, I also... Uh, I also think that when you work at one of those big trades, there's just so, there's so many competing interests that dilute the journalism of it. And uh, because you have events, you need to book people, you need to book people for the covers. Uh, you have major advertisers who are going to freak out about this and that. And 
Um, and so I, 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 so I've been I've been really proud of the way at the Angler that we've been able to break stories and do stories with our tiny little you know now six person staff that the trades don't get with their you know hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, so there is a, a I mean there's some really fine people who work at those places, but I think any of them would tell you that competition made everybody better. That, that makes a lot of sense. You've also been credited with having transformed celebrity culture during your Us Weekly era. Hollywood stars, especially in the golden era, were untouchable, mysterious, and you helped to pull down the veil between the star and the human being. How do you think the way the media covers stars has changed over the years? That's a, I, I, it's more, I would say it's less the way media covers stars than it is the way stars themselves changed. Um, and, I, I, and so I've talked before about the advent of reality television and the advent of, of Us Weekly as a, as a force. And it was this breaking down of the wall. And remember, this is all pre-social media, pre-Snapchat, pre-Instagram, um, where stars were looking to you could, I mean, it's such a cliche now, but you could really be famous for being famous. And um, that, that wall of sort of the, and that, that myth of the steps it would take to become famous, like that would seem always out of reach for most people. Um, and the reality television, and then also the advent of a certain kind of celebrity made it feel much more accessible. And of course, one of the, the things that people may remember from Us Weekly were the Just Like Us pages of um, celebrities doing ordinary things, which was, it's, it's when, you know, when you analyze it, it's an absurd idea. It's ridiculous, but it, people, I mean, it said something about the moment in time. Uh, and you also, so for those listening who don't quite remember this era of publicists like Pat Kingsley, who wielded this incredible control over celebrities. And when magazines, print magazines, were incredibly dependent on the right celebrity on a cover to make or break their month for them, they could dictate terms of how they wanted those people covered. And, and I think as we've seen in recent years, I mean, every, every celebrity story of that era had a dark side or, uh, you know, it was had some kind of untold part of it. I mean, even with the death of Ryan O'Neill um, in uh, last week, you, you definitely have heard through the years stories of how, you know, troubled a lot of part, a lot, a lot of the parts of his life were, including the relationship with his daughter, Tatum O'Neill. But at the time when it was contemporaneously being reported, everything was amazing and things were great. And so people became... I mean, you can see the precursor to a lot of the trends in media overall today. People were sort of hungry for a less sanitized, packaged version of the information they were getting. Uh, and um, I mean, you, <laughs> if you extend it out now to other parts of today's media, it also includes now inventing narratives about people, uh, you know, and <laughs> fabrications and fake news and um AI generated stories, but it certainly, I, I felt like the millennium was a turning point in all of, in the way we thought about people in positions of power. I, I also feel like we have this interesting dynamic now where star power in Hollywood, and to be honest, elsewhere as well, in media, in, in music, 
in, in almost every industry, star power isn't as potent as it used to be. Uh, Absolutely I, not. I like we're living in this like very Andy Warhol, 15 minutes of fame kind of ecosystem where social media has made everything smaller and more saturated. And it, is that a problem for Hollywood and the media that covers it as well, that there's not these sort of like megawatt stars and there's not yes. five of them in the way that it used to be. Well, or that there are five of them and they're in their fifties, right? <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> that they're the same ones that were there right. long before. I mean, when you think about the coverage, say a Jennifer Aniston still gets, oh it's, my God. it's like, it's like time, time has stopped because we haven't minted new stars. Um, and, and part of it is just the polarization. You can't just be a famous person. You have to be a famous person who appeals to one side or one side claims that person. And, uh, and it's like, everything is, I mean, this is the, this is the out, the outgrowth of social media. Like there's nothing, nothing can't be divisive anymore. And that includes our stars. And right. you've seen Chris Pratt go through that. Um, that he's he's too Trumpy. Wait, he wasn't Trumpy, and 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 people sort of losing their minds about different talent. But the downfall is that you know you want these you people miss. I do think people miss, and this is what Us Weekly had. It owned the monoculture, and monoculture no longer exists. Doesn't like, exist there anymore. Was a, some, it doesn't exist. There was something right. really nice about all of us speaking the same language about something, and even though it was utterly inane. Like you could go to a dinner party in 2006 and talk about, um, you know, are you team Jennifer Aniston, team Angelina Jolie? I mean, and like there were no stakes. You didn't now. And now it's like, oh, is that on Hulu or something? Like, it's yeah, like, you know, right. Oh, wait, where is that? Do I yeah. subscribe to it? Is that Peacock? Uh, I don't so, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so fractured. And that's th that there was something incredibly sad. And I, I don't know if you also have heard this term, um, Oh, I'm gonna complete. Oh, stuck culture, stuck culture, no. and so, What's that? Um, and so, stuck, stuck culture uh, is. So it used to be that we could look at pictures from the '60s or '70s, '80s, '90s, and like things looked different. People's clothing were, was different. Like you could identify when a movie was from that era, or even a song. And now, thanks to what has happened. Um, in the last, you know, post us weekly years, but you know, the last decade, like everything looks the same. Everything is timeless. You can't tell when something was photographed. Um, think like the the style of the era hasn't defined itself or evolved, and right. um, it's, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. And uh, you know, what do, what do we lose when we lose sort of the identity of an era? Maybe we don't lose anything, but it certainly feels different. Right. Yeah, people are still dressing like Seinfeld characters, I feel. But right, because you can change. still watch Seinfeld, you know, for hours and hours on your streaming services. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about all these shifts of, of really nothing changing, there was a monumental shift in Hollywood with the major, I mean, really a major mood change because of the Hollywood strikes. What has now been... Um, for lack of a better word, the vibe in the industry now because of the strikes. And then they're over. God, it's like they're a lasting impact, ripple effect. It's like it's like a family who had a massive fight. It's like, it's like the um I don't know if anyone saw the Christmas episode of The Bear, but it's a little bit <laughs> yeah. like this this like dysfunctional family now coming back together. And what I what's really struck me about the strikes was how virulent uh some of the comments were from 
um, like top people on the creative side from the writers and the actors. And certainly you saw Fran Drescher doing that where, uh, you know, you were like, I would say in the years right before, even the months right before, there was a certain reverence around the CEOs, around Bob Iger, around David Zasloff, and this sort of mogul worship. And, uh, and that these were like the great men of entertainment. And um, that got blown apart with the strikes where you, there was sort of this, um, and I would apply this to any place where Silicon Valley or venture money or private equity money has taken hold, or even, you know, the, this, this whole notion of earnings reports that became the guiding, uh, like the guiding drumbeat of Hollywood. And that didn't really did not exist even just a few years ago. And so, what the strikes revealed was this resentment by the workers. And when I say workers, I mean, I'm talking about even showrunners who have $100 million deals at studios of just how the, the playing field changed and uh, the resentment towards, uh, you know, not sharing the wealth, not uh, the amount that CEOs are getting paid. They're paying themselves when they're cutting back on programming spend and on people's pay and salaries. I, so that, it really brought to the forefront this resentment that you're seeing in every industry that has been upended by um, both by Wall Street and finance, um, but also Silicon Valley. And I think um, Richard Rush from Light Partners and Angler writes about this a lot, but you know, one of the Silicon Valley tenants is how to constantly decrease the cost of labor uh, to keep making more money and that's how you scale and also the replaceability of labor or eventually the replaceability of humans. And, um, and that, and so that there was a brokenness that was revealed in the strikes that, um, brought that conversation forward. What are the major stories and trends that you're focusing on at the Ankler looking forward into the new year? Obviously we're, we're in December now, when you look out sure. on the year, what are you looking at? Um, I think this is going to be a year where you see the legacy studios uh, change hands, at least one or two of them. Something is going, something has to give. If you look at is so the David, legacy David studios. David Zaslav going to buy Paramount? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> know how much the town would welcome that. <laughs> <laughs> or Taylor Sheridan might be, might be too much of a problem for that to happen. <laughs> Oh, oh my God! Um, but I think Dave. No one. No, no one wants more David Zasloff at the moment at another <laughs> legacy studio. I think, oh, um, and he's a really nice man. I like David Zasloff. Um, but it's, it's so Disney. I mean, you've seen these sort of myth, uh, mythical figures dismantled in the past year. Bob right. Iger does not have any more magical powers than anyone else. He could not fix Disney, right? And um, I think people admire him as a leader, but these these problems of the legacy businesses are, are monumental and they're only getting worse. And so I think what happens is, you know, one of these, one of these studios trades hands. Um, our prediction has always been that Netflix buys Paramount. Um, we know that Ted Sarandos has coveted the Paramount real estate for sure, and it's this beautiful lot that is in a little bit of disrepair. Um, that um, that Comcast buys Warner Brothers. That's the logical thinking, um, and uh, that private equity is going to come in and do what private equity does, and probably take hold of some of the linear assets which no longer have value, uh, or no, they're no longer growing in value. Is that um, CNN then, that you're referring to with the linear assets there? I think CNN is certainly yeah. something 
uh, that will be in play or that could be in play. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, ABC, right? ESPN, right. I Disney. think, you know, Bob Iger kind of ate some of his words, took some of his words back about the linear TV assets he was going to right. sell. But I think you can't, you can't unhear what he said at Sun Valley, which was TV is not core to our business anymore. Right. Um, so I, I, so I, you'll see the decline of cable TV assets, the the shedding of small TV cable networks that you don't even know exist. Um, these, so you you saw earlier this year the revolt of the cable providers with the Charter Disney showdown, where Charter won. I mean that that reveals how much the uh, the tables have turned. Um, so uh, it's going to be a really bleak theatrical year. Uh, because because of the strikes, uh, superhero movies, the audience is saying like, please God, make it stop, and no they rejected. No more. Like we we've been to the buffet too many times. I'm not coming out again. And so they uh, and so these are these high risk movies with 200 million dollar budgets that probably a, a major part of them are going to bomb this year. The audience is done, and that doesn't mean some of them won't succeed, but many of them may not. Um, right. Uh, but the, also the theaters are going to be fairly bare because of the strikes. So there will be almost no new releases. And so the, the entertainment, the theater going universe uh, will further be hit in 2024. Bad year for butts and seats. Uh, Janice, man, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And check out coverage of our conversation with Janice Min on Mediaite.com.